Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is Dr. Scott Elsholz, who currently serves as a music director and organist at the Catholic Church in Bartlett, Tennessee, where he leads a vibrant music ministry of five vocal and instrumental ensembles. Previously, he served as canon organist, choir master at St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral in Memphis, uh, where he led a comprehensive cathedral music program, was responsible for developing larger diocesan-wide music and liturgy initiatives, and served as artistic director for the music at St. Mary's concert series. In 2013, Scott was awarded a Doctor of Music degree summa cum laude in organ performance literature at Indiana University, where he studied with Drs. Merlin Kaiser and Larry Smith. He also served the Jacob School of Music as an associate instructor, teaching undergraduate and graduate courses in church music, piano, and music theory. Scott received his Bachelor's of Music and Master of Arts degrees in organ performance from Eastern Michigan University, where he studied organ and improvisation with Dr. Pamela Reuter Finster. As a student at Eastern Michigan, Scott received many awards and honors, including first prize in the prestigious graduate music competition. He served the music department as a university fellow and uh, as a graduate assistant in music theory and was later named adjunct professor of organ following Pamela Reuter Finster's retirement. Scott has concertized extensively and has performed in numerous master classes and organ and improvisation seminars. He was named uh, an official competitor in the 2006 American Guild of Organists National Young Artist Competition in organ performance. In 2001, he was selected um, as a participant in the Smarano Organ and Clavicord Symposium held in Smarano, Northern Italy. Scott lives in Memphis with his five-year-old daughter, Clarabella. As a family, they enjoy cooking together, playing tea party, and pretending to be superheroes. In this conversation, Scott uh, shares his insights on uh, developing lives with music ministry. Let's go to the show. So, Scott, I'm so delighted uh, that we're finally reconnecting after all these years that passed. And uh, I've seen your work uh, and, uh, and uh, experiences on Facebook, right? But, but we haven't uh, talked uh, in person, right? So thank you so much for your generosity of sharing ideas in your time. And welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So let's start uh, with this very interesting question, uh, Scott, uh, that I always ask uh, my guests at, at the beginning. Uh, um, how did you first uh, fell in love with the organ? Do you remember this story? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a fun story. So I, was, um, I wasn't even a music major when I went to college. I went to Eastern Michigan University, which is, of course, where we met. And I was going to be an elementary school teacher. I was going to teach small children and uh, decided um, I was working in a camp, a uh, summer science camp on the campus of Eastern Michigan University. And I went over to practice a little bit at the music building and um, I had no intention, but I, I, I just started, I felt this tug on my heart um, to go into music. Uh, and I was going to be a, decided, just up and decided, I was gonna be a high school choir director. Ironically enough, I had never sung in choirs in high school. I was always a band student. Anyway, I auditioned, I was led into the program, and I fell in love with what I was doing. Well, I was good enough at piano to uh, meet the proficiency that was required for an education degree, and so I was taking piano as an elective. Well, one semester, they had had too many piano students and not enough spaces in the studios. They needed those only reserved for those who, who, for, who, for whom it was required. So the head of the music department at the time, Gordon McQueer, said, we have this great new professor here uh, in Oregon. Why don't you take organ lessons, Scott? And which my reply was, no way. I hate the organ. I can't stand the organ. I knew nothing, of course, of the classical organ. My experience was in small country churches. But, um, but uh, he convinced me uh, to try one semester. And if it didn't work out, I could go back to piano. Uh, 
uh, lessons the next semester when people dropped out. And um, I, I acquiesced, I agreed. And as I was walking out of his office, um, he said these exact words to me, um, Scott, sometimes careers are made out of mistakes like these. And those words proved to be quite prophetic. And I, I talked to uh, Professor McQueer later, a few years later, and uh, to verify that he indeed said that, that my memory was true. And he said, yes, in fact, he had. And so that thus began my study with Dr. Pamela Ryder Feenstra and uh, my, my organ studies that uh, became an immediate love affair. Um, I was enamored. I had found my voice, my instrument, and I found myself practicing uh, five to eight hours a day and um, not spending as much time on my music education degree. And so I was in my senior year when I changed my program of study to organ performance and thus began um, this lifelong love affair mm -hmm. um, with organ performance, uh, with church music especially, which has become truly a vocation in my life. And that's how we met at Eastern Michigan, right? That's uh, right. We were both in the master's program. At the I remember uh, uh, Osha and I, we both we were newcomers to the U.S., right? Yes. First month after September 11th, actually. It was yes, I remember. Do you remember this terrible morning, right? Um, um, when that happened. Uh, but actually, uh, you and other, uh, other colleagues of our organ studio were so helpful to accommodate us, to, to get acquainted, right? To get involved, as they always say, in orientation sessions there at EMU. So uh, thank you. Thank you for doing that because it made a lot of difference uh, because we as Lithuanians, right, we had no experience with, with dealing with university degrees uh, of, of, of American system, right? And it, it was everything different, right? There, even the food was different, right? <laughs> and, and you even learned some Lithuanian language uh, words, some wonderful expressions. I, it, I'm not going to repeat those that I remember. <laughs> exactly, right. I still remember some of them. Yeah, so so basically, that really, really made a, a whole lot of difference. So, so no, we were we were just thrilled to have two brilliant organists from abroad join our join our little studio. It was um, it was mutually beneficial, and uh, it was that was a great time for us. And and then you know this studio is, was so so friendly, right? We, yeah, yeah, we had a good studio. Great, great meetings, and uh, uh, we always supported each other, right? No, no competitive um, feeling or spirit, although no, we strive to do our best. Right, that, but still, that came from Pamela, of course. I mean, she she created this environment, um, which she just fostered uh, a healthy learning environment for us to try out ideas. Like you say, it was we 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 weren't competing, we weren't fighting, but we were dialoguing. We were duetting and dialoguing together exactly. um, in all, all manner, in, in organ music and improvisation and in many respects in life. Right. And uh, it, it was truly a family. Do you remember that storytelling improvisation event when we I did do. this uh, Bremen, mu musicians of Bremen, right? Uh, <laughs> we played different keyboard instruments, right? For kids yes. of the yes. kindergarten in, in EMU system uh, or campus. So that was <laughs> tremendous fun, right? It was. It was. Um, that, those, those moments have stayed with me in my own work to this day, just in terms of how I approach mm -hmm. um, music making and how I share um, um, that which has been given to me. And so that, that was such a gift. Yep. Good times. Right. Exactly. And what happened later, uh, Scott, uh, uh, how did you move from Michigan to, to Memphis now? Ah, so um, I continued with the master's degree, and then um, I was planning on um, uh, getting a Fulbright. I was, I was in the, it was in the works, and it was going to happen to study with Jacques van Oetmissen in, um, in the Netherlands but um, decided, um, actually got married, and decided to stay in the United States and went to Indiana University for my doctorate, which was the right move for me. It's exactly where I needed to be. I ended up being a um, graduate assistant. I taught church music classes and class piano, and then later um, sight singing at Eastern Michigan, or excuse me, at Indiana University. At Indiana, it's one of the larger organ programs in the country. Um, Indiana and Eastman were the two, two biggest, and it was a different environment, not um, competitive in an unhealthy way, but the, um, the level of playing was just phenomenal. 
and I was constantly challenged. And um, but so I, I was very glad to be there when I was. Uh, my teacher there was Marilyn Kaiser, mm -hmm. who has since retired, and she is a grand dame of the American organ world, one of uh, the great virtuosos of the 20th century, and um, just just another great mentor. I've been very fortunate to have two incredible mentors, Pamela Ryder Feenstra and Ellen Kaiser. So, um, so I went there and um, eventually moved back up to Michigan for a full-time uh, position in the Episcopal Church in Plymouth, Michigan, and stayed there for a couple years, uh, but eventually decided we, we decided we wanted to move south. Mm -hmm. And um, so I uh, had applied for numerous positions, been, received some offers, but none seemed right until I came to the Episcopal Cathedral in Memphis. And that was in 2009. We moved down um, and was very happy there for many years and uh, um, built up a program that had been hurting for a long time. And um, uh, so really, really had a great thing there. And uh, But now I'm serving for the first time in my career in a Catholic parish. And I'm very fortunate to serve under a priest who has a great love for good music, Benedictine trained. And uh, so he's very supportive of, of the, my work in ministry. So uh, that, that's the, the Cliff's Notes version of how I right. came to Memphis. Elevator pitch, right? Yes, <laughs> that's right. Great. That's so, right. So we'll, we're going to, to go back and forth from your early years and now to compare what you learned. And, and it's wonderful to remember those things. For example, do you remember the first, piece on the organ that you played at uh, EMU? I remember uh, she, uh, Pamela Ryder Feenstra had me studying out of the George Ritchie, uh, the Ritchie's um, uh, pedag pedagogy book. Right. And so I started working there. I remember the first performance mm -hmm. um, I gave. It was two settings of Vom Himmelhoch, mm -hmm. uh, one by Zachau and one by Pachelbel. And I remember, this was at the Methodist Church in Ypsilanti, Michigan. It was, it was part of the prelude before lessons and carol service involving university choirs. And my legs were shaking uncontrollably. And the good thing was I only had to play the cantus firmus in the, in the pedal. But, um, but I was so nervous. Um, but the one thing I'm so grateful for with Pamela, there came a time where I said, I, I I just want to study organ and have this as, as just for myself. Mm -hmm. I was so frightened to perform. And but she, she pushed me. She mm -hmm. said, no, music is meant to be shared. And she pushed me. And from that first performance of Zachau and Pachelbel to, to today, I mean, I, I, I'm eternally grateful to mm -hmm. that. So I remember that um, one thing and stop me if I'm, I'm going on too much, but um, I started Eastern Michigan university at the time we had cassette tapes. Mm -hmm. of old organ programs, um, Pipe Dreams, and, 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 and different, diff, just different albums. And I started listening. And we had this repository, this library of American organist magazines. Mm -hmm. right. And I knew nothing about this world, but I, I just started eating it up. And I remember my, the first organ CD I bought was actually E. Power Biggs playing Bach on the, I think it's the Flentrop at um, Harvard in the Bush Reisinger Museum. And he played this uh, just works of Bach on this organ. Um, my first time really hearing a uh, virtuoso playing Bach. And I remember the A minor prelude and fugue, uh, 543. And I had no business playing it at that time. Mm -hmm. But I recall saying to Dr. Ritter Feenstra that I really like this piece. I want to play it. And she, she did not, many teachers would have said, no, nah, you're not ready for that. Really? She encouraged me. And I wasn't, I wasn't at a point where I could really play that, um, where I would want to perform it now. Now, but she encouraged that, and to the point that I played a cadenza, the cadenza at the end, um, for our first improvisation symposium. And I, I believe, if, if my memory serves me right, it was a disaster performance-wise. But it was, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter because it was in such a warm environment, and it was about trying things, taking chances, taking leaps, and knowing that from from that we grow and we learn and become better musicians. And that that proved to be the case. Yeah, Pamela was an expert in in uh, in 
in sharing her knowledge in a very friendly way that uh, didn't intimidate uh, the students at all. Uh, she's, she had ideas like dialogues and duets, right? Yes, yes. What's the big deal? Thirds and sixths, you can do this, right? Uh, parallel right. thirds or opposite direction, no big deal. And, uh, and people tried, our uh, students, uh, uh, colleagues, right? Uh, we did... Uh, some better than others doesn't matter right it's it's right. important that you just start somewhere and then you develop uh, by, uh, as you go absolutely and now I'm working for a Catholic parish and being at the Episcopal Cathedral I had to improvise all the time and I, I make no claim I am no great improviser and I, I haven't kept up my house but I can do it mm -hmm. and I'm not afraid to do it even at what, whatever level I'm at um, there's no there's really no fear and that is I attribute that entirely to the environment that, that Pamela fostered at Eastern Michigan University. Without that, I mean, you, we know a lot of organists, and um, we work so much on repertoire um, for so many, especially here in America. This is changing, of course. It's been changing. But um, yes. to, to ask someone to improvise publicly, I mean, you would think <laughs> you, were, you were asking them a life or death exactly. <laughs> question. So. Right. So, you know, like uh, people, uh, according to recent studies, people, uh, people's most, uh, number two fear is uh, um, uh, death, right? And number sure. one is public speaking. Really? Really? <laughs> number, number, number two is death. Only number two. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are an average person, you're better off uh, in uh, lying in the casket than, than doing the eulogy, you know? That's funny. <laughs> it's 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 it, it is. If if you have the 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 terrible uh, experience at going and uh, doing something in public, improvisation is one of them, right? And right. not only speaking, but but playing, giving your best. That's that might be very terrifying, right? But um, but somehow uh, with taking those first steps, not leaps, but steps, basically. Um, you you discover some things, right? You you make those mistakes which don't kill you, right? Right, exactly. And and, uh, and you learn from them. I'm I'm naturally an extrovert, and I don't mind being up in front of groups, and I I, I love playing concerts to audiences, but to to improvise, mm -hmm. to improvise in front of a group, that was just uh, <laughs> um, I, I that was so difficult for me to open myself up. I remember going to Smarano. I think, did you ever go to Smarano? The, the uh, no, but of course, that's a great place. Yeah. And again, I was still relatively early in my organ studies. And of course, here are uh, students from all over the world and some from the States, from Eastman and Yale. And here I am, what, in my second year, third year of playing organ. But again, even there, um, Pamela, uh, she showed me with a repertoire and gave me the list of repertoire. And you know, I was, I volunteered to, to play in front of these groups of people. I was so, so nervous. But again, it was all about just taking that step, mm -hmm. taking those steps, um, making yourself a little uncomfortable, yes, but it's, it's through that, um, that that I grew um, as part of my own journey. And um, at the moment, it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying, but... Those have been such a formative experiences for me. Exactly. We have to remind our listeners that Smarano Organ Academy is uh, is where in Italy, Italy, right in the mountains yeah. of Northern Italy. Yeah, Northern Italy, beautiful landscape, right, and fantastic yes. food. And it's, yeah, and it's this tiny village. It's a small town in the in the foothills of the Alps, with filled with um, great organs. Um, and the whole region, of course, they have a lot of significant historical instruments. But um, they would bring in and clavichords and harpsichords and uh, um, <laughs> it was just amazing. We'd have some of the best uh, organ pedagogues in the world. Balti, um, Davidson, Joel Spearstra was there, I recall, mm -hmm. and uh, a number of others. And it was just, just such a gift. Exactly. So in Indiana University, it's uh, it's a big program, right? Very competitive. Yes. You constantly see competition winners, right? Yes. Uh, or at, uh, at, the, uh, at the first pages of of the of the TAO magazine, right? Right. Uh, right. From Indiana, Indiana, and Indiana. Well, sometimes Eastman as well. And those two programs lead the the organs profession into the future in this country, right? Basically. Sure. 
of course, there are a number of other important schools like Yale and uh, Juilliard and others. But uh, uh, with the number of students, uh, can you remember how many students uh, there were at the, at the time that you studied at the Indiana? Oregon majors, there were at least 30, and most of them were graduate uh, master's and doctoral students. Now that, the dynamic at Indiana has changed. The faculty have changed, and it's, it's the program is just, uh, they have a new bunch of new instruments, and it's really exploding now. It's even bigger. But we had at least 30 Oregon majors. It was between 30 and 40. Mm -hmm. um, but we had, there were different studios, and we didn't have that type of uh, animosity among the studios, not at all. But within the studios, we were a pretty tight-knit group, and, and we all, there's <laughs> the hallway in the in the in the music building one of the many music buildings there where all the practice organs were we'd all just sit on the floor of the hallway and eat lunch together and mm -hmm. wait for a practice organ but but it was a it was really um a great environment for me mm -hmm. to grow at that point and of course you were a mature musician at the time right you <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't know that I can make that claim today, but um I was at a different place of course than when I had started um my bachelor's program at Eastern so, so I'd had some experience. Right. And uh, the DMA program, or not DMA, DM, right? Doctor yeah, yeah of Doctor of Music, You're right. So, so it's very different from Master of Music or Master of Arts, right? That uh, right. the Michigan University offered. Um, can, you, can you give us a little bit of, of, of that experience? Uh, was it a lot of research or performance or combined? Uh, how was it uh, divided between? Those? Yeah. I think um, heavy on performance, though, Indiana, is, its research component is quite rigorous. At least I, I've compared with other programs in the country, and, and maybe not the most, I don't know. But, but there was a lot of academic work that was required. Um, uh, you have your typical graduate classes, but um, uh, just in, in terms of the, the research, uh, I, I found myself in the library quite a bit. But, of course, mine was a performance-based degree, and so I was required to give multiple recitals. And uh, we were lucky. We had a, a really tight-knit organ department and we as a department the students would get together and we would put on organ and choral concerts um, and do different things and uh, so it was we we created additional performance opportunities we did an annual halloween pipe spectacular concert which i continue to this day because um, it's just great fun but um but in terms of the research i um i received two minors one in music theory and one in church music and the music theory was was very difficult for me um, I'd had uh, some decent instruction at Eastern, but at Indiana, it was, it was on a different plane altogether. So Schenkerian analysis and analysis of, of 20th century music, bar talk and whatnot, it was completely out of my comfort zone. And that, that was a great challenge. I made it through and did well, but, um, but not without a bit of stress. Uh, the church music just helped to deepen um, my work there and my knowledge, really to give me a, a rather broad a view of that type of work, that, that vocal here, especially in the United States, Marilyn Kaiser, she knew she knows the the sacred choral repertoire inside and out. We had a class; it's called a church music practicum. We dealt with interviews, clergy relationships, clergy relations, all different um, uh, choir recruiting, uh, very the varied aspects of a church musician's work here in the United States. And so that was also how to one of the greatest experiences was how to um, console conduct and how to accompany choral anthems. And one of Marilyn Kaiser's, uh, uh, one of her sayings was, when it came to a choral accompaniment and um, console conducting, never trust the printed page. Uh, it wasn't carte blanche to do whatever you wanted, but you know, you always have to make, um, there, there are exceptions, or you, you have to make different changes in the music in order to make it happen. Exactly. Um, especially, especially when reducing an orchestral score for the organ. And that was so helpful for me, and um, I used that quite a bit. I taught uh, undergraduate church music classes. And I remember uh, looking at the curriculum and I really had to develop part of that curriculum. Um, I remember speaking with Marilyn Kaiser before the first semester and I said, Dr. Kaiser, I don't even know how to do some of this. And she said, well, you'll, you'll learn it by teaching it. <laughs> Through teaching it, you'll learn it. And then that, that was indeed, indeed the case. Um, uh, in terms of performance, yeah, of course, gave multiple recitals. My, I eventually chose my... Um, my document, my final document topic, through work in the graduate research course, bibli bibliographic study, and I, I wrote it on um, the central German organist composer Johann Heinrich Buchstedt, 
and um, my work, I, I have not yet, I've not yet published it, um, and I need to because I found at least one item of historical import, but it turns out is it is now the most, what appears to be the most comprehensive study of Buchstedt in the English language. Right. And uh, so I, that, that's something I need to pursue, but uh, of course having a child and working <laughs> changes a lot of that. But, um, but uh, Buchstedt mm -hmm. uh, was the focus of my research. Yes, you mentioned uh, those church music courses, radical, you co uh, conduct uh, at the council, and it's so different in every situation. Sometimes you're facing yeah. the, the congregation, sometimes you face yes. the organ, sometimes to the side, to the other side, and it all changes. You have to do with one hand or another. So then you constantly have to rearrange stuff, right? With, with basically taking as much of the music of notes in the, into the uh, one hand, preferably the right hand, right? And playing with your feet right. and then conduct it with another, right? And then put yeah. turning pages probably. It's, it's so complicated, it seems, right? Yes, it's, it's an acquired skill. It does, just doesn't come. I mean, you can know the music inside and out, um, but you, one has to practice mm -hmm. console conducting just as one practices repertoire or improvisation. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's very difficult, uh, but... Uh, Marilyn Kaiser really impressed upon us how important that is. And, and that was part of our, our work, our homework for the class, is to practice console conducting. And, and that class was kind of a lab of sorts. So we would, um, we would, console, we would each have to console conduct, but then and we would alternate. Some of us would accompany and some of us would conduct. We would do it apart from the organ. Mm -hmm. And she would assign different uh, pieces from the, from the repertoire, especially the Anglican repertoire. And that was such a gift. Mm -hmm. um, because we would, we would not only would we learn, would we build upon those skills, but we would learn the repertoire while doing it. Mm -hmm. so. so now, do you have to council conduct too? I do. Mm -hmm. I do. Or do you have an assistant organist, for example? No, okay. no. no. When I was at the cathedral, I had an assistant, but um, and the arrangement was such that it would be very difficult to council conduct. But where I'm at now, it 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 um, it's a uh, I actually have to do it with my right hand. Uh -huh. uh, the, 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 such as the arrangement is, it's, it's with my right hand. So, so that's been an added um, difficulty. But, um, but it's, it's just what we do. Are you left-handed, Scott? No, no. No. So it's really tricky to play with the, yeah. with the left hand, right? The top, right. top parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can feel that. So, but you, you learn by doing and making mistakes, right? And and fall, yes. f falling over and then getting up and <laughs> and uh, still your choir of course are very supported supported uh, supportive of your efforts I guess and, uh, yeah, absolutely and I tell them if if, if I'm not going to give it with my hand look at my look at my chin look at my head and I joke around about it I I might do something with my shoulder or my knee and they, you know just <laughs> look up and watch uh one way or the other i will give you the cue but i i really do practice and works to make sure i'm consistent i acquire needs that in their director i believe that consistency so there's no guesswork about how this is going to happen mm -hmm. and butched it of course then the the <laughs> Very obscure middle German composer from the Baroque period. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit of his background? And his well, for Buchstedt's, uh, he's most known for a, um, a theoretical debate he entered into with Johann Matheson, and he was eviscerated by Johann Matheson, who was by far his intellectual superior. Uh, and just to, to um, uh, simplify the, it, um, Buchstedt was um, advocating... Um, looking back uh, to the church modes and railing against modern tonality that was being espoused by Matheson. And they entered into a very public, very nasty debate, um, rebutting one another in the various publications. And Matheson's Neue Eröffnete Orchestra was a rebuttal to, to Buchstedt. I mean, it really was. And Buchstedt, um, after that debate, he really receded, even though he lived for another... 20 years, um, he, he really, his prominence receded. But he was known as a student of Pachelbel, and he stayed in Erfurt. He was, um, for his, most of his life, the, the um, uh, music director at the Predigerkirche in, in Erfurt. And he has um, quite an output. I focused on uh, his one collection called the Musikalische um, um, uh, Fratzkammer. Um, and uh, Kunstwerk und Fratzkammer, I can't believe I can't just name that, but um, a collection 
collection of pieces, all um, free works. And, um, and in the, he, he has this extended preface where he outlines his argument for returning to uh, the church modes. Uh, there's this amazing frontispiece with all of this um, rhetorical symbolism and a lot of the images. It's just beautiful publication. And um, I came to this project because at Indiana, in our vault, we had a, a, a copy that Vili Oppel had made of the, of the original publication from 1713. Uh, it was in the vault. Um, of course, Vili Oppel wrote the keyboard music before 1700. And so he went around Europe collecting these manuscripts and these sources. So we had that in Indiana. And we also had a biography of Buchta in German from the 1930s, mm-hmm. from the 1930s. And that, that, so those two um, sources led me on, on this path. Um, and so I, I found various materials. Um, I, I, I wrote a, a fairly comprehensive biographical, um, I had a biographical outline of his, um, and also looked at the one modern edition available um, uh, through, uh, through Schott, Klaus Beckmann, the well-known editor, and went through that. I compared the modern edition with the original publication, of course, found, um, found many discrepancies and whatnot, but, but yeah, as, as one will with any edition. But uh, I have to say here, I found one item of historical import, if I may announce that on this podcast. Excellent, so excellent. I had always, <laughs> I had always learned, um, I was told it, from my undergraduate years, the the notational device known as the double dot mm-hmm. was sort of invented by Leopold Mozart right. in his treatise on violin playing. Um, of course, there was a performance practice in the French overture style of double dotting rhythms, but they didn't have the musical notation until Leopold Mozart. And and I, I later looked um, in the Oxford Dictionary of Music, it, it um, states this. Well, in this 1713 publication by Johann Heinrich Buchstadt, well before Leopold Mozart, in this um, uh, preludium, which is uh, it's like an early fantasia, um, there are multiple instances of, of the double dot mm-hmm. uh, from 1713. Now, it wasn't in a French overture style. It was in the context of trills. Um, and, but... Uh, I can I cannot say that Leopold I can say with certainty that Leopold Mozart was was not the first to use the double dot. I think Mozart came to it um, honestly. He likely knew nothing of Buchstadt and this and this work. But um, but uh, for that reason, if that reason alone, um, I need to publish some of these results just to show that no, it did exist. It did exist, and I looked for other instances where it was used in um, in the context with with a trill, but I could find none. None. And if any of our listeners have any examples, I would I would love to hear about that. But I, I couldn't find any in my research, and so so that was very very exciting. And in my public defense, um, I talked about that <laughs> and uh, piqued some people's interest. But, uh, I so. hope you will publish that because um, because it's um, it's important, right? It is. It is in some small way. It's a contribution. Mm-hmm. You, you correct some some uh, common knowledge, right? Everybody thinks that Leopold Mozart did that, but no, 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 right? It was earlier. Right. 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 That read. So. Fantastic. Um, so uh, so now, uh, of course, you are a music director, right? Very. Oh, yeah. Very important title in in, in organist profession, right? And, uh, many church musicians strive to to achieve that title uh, going from uh, from assistant organist right to, to other means and then when you become uh, uh, like music director you lead the musical life in, in the parish right so right. tell us a little bit how do you lead the musical life in your parish in my current parish yeah well i have a fairly it's not a large catholic church it's called a medium family parish uh here in the united states uh but it's a it's a vibrant community um they a, their music program had been through some trauma prior to my coming. There had been some turnover with music directors, and there had been real no um, consistent uh, leadership, unfortunately, there. And so I, I came in just, just last November, um, and I direct a parish choir. I have about, uh, if everyone were to come on any given week, I'd have about 30 people in the mm-hmm. parish choir, which is really great. Um, I've got a children's choir. Uh, of about of 10 kids, um, teaching them solfege is something they've never had. Add a solfege, and um, one thing I'm actually with all of my choirs plan. I'm uh, planning to introduce this season uh, the pneumatic notation, 
Mm -hmm. uh, so we can we can read and cite read chant um, that's something that's not done in most American Catholic parishes quite admittedly um, right you're doing such a tremendous uh, um, I think um, uh, work here because uh, even though it's important for your music program right to uh, cite read and do uh, do um, solfege but but uh, but but later on when they move out uh, move on with their lives they will learn this skill right and we will this skill will remain with them so what you're doing is tremendously valuable so that yes and that's that will be new um i also have a folk band a lot of catholic parishes in the united states do this sort of contemporary folk music and we have that as well and to be quite honest um that music and 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 I am not, uh, in, in my work as a church musician, I'm not either or. You can only do one style of music. I, I truly believe and uh, that there can be good repertoire found in all, all various traditions. And so we, I incorporate that repertoire as well. That's part of their history. It was only with my, the current pastor, um, head priest at this parish, that they, they um, instituted more traditional, they, they bought a more traditional hymnal and started um, learning some of this uh, wonderful Catholic repertoire um, that, that has been around for, for centuries, of course. Um, so I, I do lead that group every other week. Uh, I have a handbell choir. Uh, Americans love their handbells, and so I have that, and that's a lot of fun. I also have a funeral choir. Uh, I have a separate choir for all of our, our funeral masses. Um, try, I'm looking um, maybe this year by the next, at the latest, to begin a scola. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to have a scola. I and scola to to sing primarily chant mm -hmm. and uh, some polyphony, but um, that's that's a goal of mine. When you're working uh, full time in, in such a such a field, right, the music director, sometimes people feel that uh, they no longer have time to practice, right, because they have mm -hmm. to do this administrative work uh, with uh, chasing up uh, copyrights and planning and dealing right. with meetings, uh, those things, right, uh, which are important. But uh, they, you, as, as an organist, sometimes you feel, wait a minute, my skills are degrading sometimes, right? Do you feel that you can uh, basically... Um, do 50-50 of, of preparation and performance, or how do you uh, divide your time in your work? It is very, very easy to get stuck behind the computer. It is very, very easy to do that. And I mean, to be honest, I can probably just sit down and play the mass without practicing. I, I'm a good, good reader. I'm a good sight reader. And a lot of the masterworks I played at the university, I can, I can bring up in less than a week's time. So um, I have that gift but I don't rely on that. And I, I make time for practice and I'm always giving, I give multiple recitals a year. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And I play a repertoire that I've played before, but I also play new repertoire. Um, I make sure I give at least one to two concerts a year. This year I plan to give three or four. Um, I'm always learning new repertoire. For instance, I've started one of my favorite pieces of music. I've, uh, in the organ literature that I've never played. I always wanted to, and I can't remember if you did or not. The prelude by Maurice Durfley. I've always wanted to play this piece. And so I'm learning it now. And I devote time. The Mass is such, is such that I really won't have a chance to play that during Mass uh, um, after, certainly. But, um, but this will be a concert piece. And so I'm, I'm learning that daily. I spend time with that. So I do make time to practice. I think that's very important. We, it's so easy to lose sight of that, of course. There is a lot of planning copyrights and whatnot, arranging music, communicating with people about upcoming events. Yes, uh, that is very important. I have a child. I have a five-year-old daughter, and so that takes a lot of time, too. That's my greatest priority in life. But when I'm at work, I have to spend time almost daily, not every day, but almost daily, I spend time in, in, the, um, in the church practicing. Fantastic that, that you, you are... You have this will, right? Uh, um, very strict, uh, strict approach to, to, to practicing, right? Yes. You could rely on, on your talent, right? Or your previous experiences. You could sight read everything almost, almost, almost uh, perfectly, right? But in the, in the end, in the long run, it's, it, it does hurt, uh, I think, uh, uh, musicians if they do that, if they rely on talent. 
And I, I remember, I'm pretty sure this came from Pamela. Um, you can always discover something new in Bach, in Bach's organ works, be that an Orgelbüchlein chorale or, or a large prelude and fugue. You can always discover something new. And, and I, I try to, I, I keep that with me and I take that to heart that um, in the, even in the works that I've played previously, I could play it quickly, prepare it quickly. And sometimes I do that. But I really look to see, okay, how, how do I hear this now? What do I want to bring up? What do I want to highlight now? What does this mean? Uh, what am I trying to express? What's different now? And, but just um, even new pieces, I have to try to find something new. If I, if I don't, I remain static. Mm-hmm. And, then, and I can only speak for myself, but, but I, I don't wish to remain static artistically. Um, as long as long as I can play, and I want to make clear, I believe it is a gift to be able to do this for one's vocation, career. I, I know how fortunate I am in this world. I remember Marilyn Kaiser saying in one of my lessons, we just stopped playing. And she, she looked at me and said, Scott, aren't we blessed to be able to do that which we love? So many people in this world can't, can't do anything like that. And, and um, I don't think I quite understood it at that time. I do now. I like to think I do now. But um, so I'm so grateful. I mean, what a gift. If it is to be able to go into work and spend time challenging myself, playing Maurice Durafle, <laughs> uh, that's a pretty and, good life. And get paid for that, right? And get paid for it. I mean, really, and have benefits. Get paid for what you would be do be doing for free anyway, right? Yeah, well, right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. I, I, I hope I never take that for granted. Mm-hmm. So. Well, of course, uh, you mentioned this, uh, this, uh, this issue of, uh, of um, you know, uh, taking uh, your, uh, your work and looking at, uh, at it very deeply and loving your work, right? When you love your work, yes. you know, it's no longer work, right? It's, oh. it's, a, it's a passion. It's, it's, it's a calling, don't you think? It is. And I, I call it a vocation. Vocation. I didn't always call it a calling, but it, a calling, a vocation, I, I do call it that now. There was a point where I didn't, but um, I think maybe I've grown up enough at this point, uh, or just to really see it for what it is and, um, and to be grateful. And I'm, I left St. Mary's Cathedral and worked a real job for a year. I was a manager in a public library mm-hmm. here in Memphis, and I'm, I'm glad I had that experience. I, that's not a good fit for Scott, <laughs> but um, I'm glad I had that experience because it gave me a renewed appreciation for what we as musicians exactly, do yeah and and what not only for myself but what we communicate to other people the lives that we can Im- impact mm-hmm. through our music uh i work with a choir and i mean we're not doing thomas Tallis. this choir is not at that point um yet but what we do what what, what i do every week i hope i do is build lives build faith lives build what how, however one interprets it but just to to bring people joy through music, teach them something so that they feel they feel a little better. They feel like they've been enlightened in some way, but also help to deepen their faith through mm-hmm. music. I, it's it's very important to me. It's it's a gift, right? It's a privilege. Practice is privilege. Do you remember Pamela Reuter Finstra always stressed <laughs> that practice is privilege, and uh, uh, whenever we take this for granted, we sort of. Uh, get lazy and oh say oh it's cold right uh, I won't yeah. today, maybe tomorrow or in a week who cares right but uh, people do care uh, actually scott uh, do your choir members care that you constantly trying to improve and uh, play recitals for them once uh, once or yes. twice a year they had never had they had never had church, they had never had recitals at this parish mm-hmm. and i've given since november i've already given two and I mean, we had, gosh, 300 people at each of them. And they were just so, I mean, it's not about the numbers for me, but there was such a groundswell of support and excitement for that sort of thing. Like, look at what we eat, even in this parish, some would say, well, I, I don't look at it like that. Um, but, but we can do, we can do fun, great musical things, however you want to describe it, anywhere, in any context, um, you can reach people in any context you you have to learn to speak the language and um and and learn how to communicate but for me it is about that communication about that that deepening of one's of one's uh life 
Scott, do you have to motivate people to, to get better all the time in your choir or do they have this internal motivation and they come prepared for your rehearsals? I think um, I don't have to um, explicitly do that, but I, I aim to in, the, in how I approach it to motivate. I'm a high energy person. <laughs> I, um, sometimes I talk too much, but I'm a high energy person and I myself am quite motivated and I, I get excited maybe even a little too easily at times. Um, I'm very comfortable in front of groups of people. Um, and I, I hope, and I, people have told me this, but I hope people can feed off that excitement and they usually do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when it comes to, um, recruiting for choirs, mm -hmm. I've never been one really, I'm not afraid to ask people, but I've never been one to keep bothering people. Join the choir, join the choir, join the choir. What I do is I aim to build the choir, improve the choir, the, the musical quality, but also show that it's a lot of fun. And when people, when they see that it's a lot of fun or just there's good camaraderie before or after mass, there's good camaraderie, there are smiles, and that they're sounding better, they're improving, doing just really, really um, deepening, um, deepening the, the worship uh, life of the parish. People want to join something like that. They want to be a part of something like that. And so I, I do, as best as I am able to, I, I, I try to foster that, that environment environment as best as I may, just as Pamela did for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could not, Pamela and for me, uh, Marilyn Kaiser, I could not have had better mentors in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to maintain that. Um, you, I mean, you remember uh, how Pamela would teach with such excitement with our improvisations. Uh, uh, there was such excitement there and it was infectious. And even if we're scared to do it, mm -hmm. we want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so people look and see your enthusiasm, right? Through your eyes, yes. through your gestures, and they believe that you can um, basically transmit something deeper, something bigger than themselves to them and, and let them grow, and which makes a lot of difference for, for modern people because all they do sometimes, they sit in their smartphones, right, and all the time. But now you, you help them come together physically and, uh, and do something together, create music together in a physical way, uh, not through, you know, so texting or, or, or doing something on the phone. But it's, it's, it's such a um, deep and physical experience singing together, right? And um, I think uh, technology cannot really um, change that, right? Or, or, right. or make, it, uh, make it somehow different, right? We still need this physical aspect of getting together and singing together. There's no substitute for it. Absolutely. And I always, always um, remind or we, we talk about incorporate the fact that we're doing this um, for, for praise and prayer mm -hmm. and to lead a congregation in song. And um, I would say um, all of my members really, really believe in what they do um, from a sacred point of view, not only from the, com the communal aspect, the educational aspect, but also in leading worship, that that is as high a calling as there is and that we are entrusted to, to lead in song or, you know, in, in some way to, to lead in song, the, this gathered body. And, um, and so that, that's an important, I mean, that, that's such a great unifier because we're all there. Um, well, we all have our own motivations and whatnot, but ultimately our goal is to lead in prayer and praise. Mm -hmm. so. It's a common purpose, right? And it's it unifies people and makes makes the whole uh, the whole community come together, uh, not just in choir, but you feel this energy in in the entire church, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And um, there's nothing better than really just hearing the human voice. So one thing I do um, when I'm accompanying hymnody, I often and this is difficult. At, at first, perhaps, but you have to train the choir well. I drop out. I will do a will do a stanza a cappella, because to me there is nothing more beautiful than the human voice uh, in in concert singing hymns, singing hymns. To me, that I mean, that's such a pure expression of faith. And so I, I try. I mean, sometimes I'll do big improvisations on a <laughs> on a hymn stanza, of course, like we do. But but um, to me, there's nothing more beautiful than you know the organ just drops. Upping out and leading the congregation in a cappella singing. I it's, love that. 
it's it's a scary experience for choir members though right at first it is you have to uh, get acquainted to the feel with the feeling at, at first right but uh, but gradually they they know their parts and know the harmony and somehow they trust that they can right, so right. Help. and of course you train a choir for that sort of thing you do but i will do it on the fly as we say if if i am getting a, a sense of where the congregation is at while we are singing um you know, I think that's what we, we always, when we accompany mass, a service, a hymn, whatever, we need to be sensitive to, we need to be constantly aware of what's happening. And if I, if I sense in a hymn, like, okay, um, I, I, I just feel moved by, however you want to call it, moved by the spirit or just confident in the congregation's ability, whatever, um, I will drop out mm-hmm. uh, the organ and, and I'll conduct, of course, but, um, but, uh, but that. That to me, when it just happens um, instantaneously like that, it's it's really phenomenal. Would you encourage our listeners, Scott, uh, who who lead choirs in, in churches, uh, right, to experiment with this technique, dropping out and uh, leading yes. the a cappella stance uh, once in a while? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because and then they really listen to themselves. The choir members they they really begin to listen to themselves, and that helps to build up their confidence. Especially, um, I've never had that fall flat, right? It's never just completely fallen apart. Or if, if I hear, well, I, I think at some points I've come back in quietly, uh, maybe toward the end of a stanza, if I feel that things aren't quite gelling, and that's fine, but absolutely experiment with it. And at first, prep your choir. Practice it, practice it, practice it. Prepare and then I always the, say... Prepare, that? Uh, prepare for the unexpected element, right? Uh, right, exactly, exactly. And I play three masses a weekend which isn't that much but i i will sometimes in the first two masses get a sense uh, of how that how this works in the in the singing life faith life of this congregation and so um uh my last mass is the mass primary mass with the choir and so uh um we get to experience that and i have some idea as i go into it you know once you've been doing something long enough you, you get an idea of how things work but i'm like i said i'm always not only pushing myself to learn duraflay or or to practice counter, um, counterpoint improvisation, I, I, I seek to do the same with my ensembles. Mm-hmm. And when you're working with volunteers, sometimes that can be difficult for them. Um, it moves them outside of their comfort zone. But once I always, I've learned that when I go into a new position, I can't just come in like a wrecking ball and make changes, say, no, we're not doing this, we're not doing that, I don't like this, I don't like that. Um, there were, early on in my career, I wasn't cruel about it or mean, but I came in, and say, okay, this is what we're doing now. You really need to build that trust um, with members of your music ministry. And I work very hard to do that. They get to know me, not only musically, but personally. Um, I, I'd like to impress upon our listeners. We can't all do this, but I think it's very important for a musician, in as much as possible, to attend parish functions. Mm-hmm. To go, my daughter and I went to the parish picnic, and the, I sat in a dunking booth, and people threw balls at this target and would dunk me in a bunch of of water. Now, we all can't do that, and not everyone's comfortable with that sort of thing, but I think it's important in some way to be involved with the parish life. Because, I mean, you're not pulling the wool over people, you're not faking anything, not at all, but becoming a part of that parish, they know you, they trust you, they begin to love you in, in, in a certain way, and um, and then, I mean, you can really lead musically, and, and they'll do anything, um, because they know that, that you're working um, to improve you're working for the greater glory, not for not for myself, for my own my own glory. Exactly. I don't know if that makes sense, and, and that won't work for everybody. But that's just in my experience. What I really seek to do is to become part of the parish life. Yeah, it's it happens that people are sometimes you know strictly professional, right? And they stick in the box of their uh, profession, right? Leading the choir, musical life, and that's it, right? And there's a place for that. I, I'm not saying that that's wrong. But if you if you get involved, um, for example, it's everybody wants to be interesting, right? To, for others, right? That they get in, uh, get a com- good communication, right? But if you want to do that, you you have to stay interested too. You know what they are doing too in their lives and uh, how they how you can help them. Uh, basically, they help you and you help out too. And, right. I feel that you you do you have this in your in your daily work, uh, Scott. That that you um, 
you're sort of um, a part of a bigger community, not only an organist and a choir master and then a music director, but you, you, you care, right? You care about what happens be behind the, the, the rehearsals, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's music, it's not an end in and of itself. Sometimes it is, you know, you have this musical performance, but even in a concert, it's about communicating and it's about developing lives. Uh, that's my vocation. That's, that's how I see it. It's about developing lives, faith lives, personal lives, intellectual lives, um, communal lives. Uh, it's really about building people, um, of course, in the context of church and through faith. Um, it, it's not that with everything, of course. But, and you know, I'll be honest, not everyone is always going to agree with you, your musical choices. You, you inevitably get um, complaints, the organ's too loud here or there. I think every parish musician has heard that at one point. Um, but, uh, but so you're never going to have everyone agree with everything you do, and that's okay, mm -hmm. because it, it, it ends up creating opportunities for dialogue, mm -hmm. for discussing it, for understanding, for teaching people. Okay, um, just, I think that's the most common complaint, and I don't really get it much, but the organ was too loud. Well, let, let me tell you about why, why that one stanza was, was on a louder registration versus it wasn't, if you notice, it wasn't all loud. There was a different sound or a different technique. And let, let me show you why that is. Let, let's look at the text here and see why um, that would have been a bigger sound. Um, there's a very specific reason for that. Um, and when you do that, that helps create dialogue. And um, not to get everyone to like me or like everything I do, but just to communicate that there's more to it. Right, right. And, you, and you're not being defensive, right? You're no, not no, no, no. I, I always thank people. I, I always thank people people and I mean it I thank you for telling me because they're what that means is they're engaged they care they care right they have a vested interest in this they may not agree with with this or that but they care and I'm never I hope I pray I I never get defensive or condescending um that 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 would be so counterproductive and counter to, who, to how I approach things. Mm -hmm. So, and this caring, this this common purpose, of course, uh, um, unifies people. But it only um, is possible when the entire congregation works uh, together. For example, if you have a priest or a, or a pastor, right, uh, your your boss basically telling one thing but doing completely another, right? Uh, right. His words doesn't uh, agree, right, with his right. Name then you feel kind of, kind of, it's, it's shady, right? And you don't want to be a part of that, right? You can kind right. of do, just do your job and get out, get in and get out. Sure. And, but, but if you believe it, in what, what they are doing and that you are helping everybody's cause, right? It's, it's a blessing what, what, what uh, sometimes the situation is. It not always happens, right? The good well, relations. And I am, I know how blessed I am. Really, every, almost every position I've ever held, I've had very supportive clergy. And I know that is not the case in every situation. I, you hear horror stories all the time. And um, I, that's not been my reality. And I know how fortunate I am. So, I mean, if, if, if I had a different clergy situation, maybe I, maybe I wouldn't be as involved in the parish. I don't know. I can't say. But I do know that um, in every, Almost every parish I've ever served, I've had loving, um, supportive clergy who um, they who care about the music, but they they let they also trust mm -hmm. who care about the music, but they also trust um, in in the work in ministry. And so that is a gift, and that may be even rare. I don't know, but that has been my experience, and I have been extremely blessed um, uh, uh, with, with every position. I know how lucky I am. Right. So, so Scott, of course, uh, you you love music ministry. You think that it's your your vocation, right? You feel that. And um, can you imagine yourself being not an organist or church musician in in another life? For example, if you had a chance for another uh, uh, go, right uh, here right. on Earth, would you choose the same path for you? Uh, that I can say yes, undoubtedly, a resounding. Resounding yes, and by taking that year off, working a like I say a real job, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but working a different type of career. And I thought for a while, oh, I could do something else, make more money, um, you know, just be able to take big vacations, uh, yada yada yada. And no, <laughs> when you're called to do something, um, 
that there, I mean, what, what if you, you, I had to do everything I could to get back into, into the field. And again, I'll, I'll harken back to what I said when I started taking Oregon, it was a love affair. It's like, I knew immediately. I've had a few of those moments in my life um, where it was just a, like a light switch going on and where I forget something and then it just, something happens. I call it the spirit, call it, call it good fortune. It doesn't, I don't care what anyone calls it, but um, it was that way when I started playing the organ and I just knew that was where I needed to be. And um, I had a calling last year before I came back into the field, something happened and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's where I needed to be. And so, I mean, who knows in any given situation, um, I, I was, I'm the son of a Lutheran minister, a very great, great pastor and a, and a loving, loving father, and who's very supportive of me, always has been. And, you know, I was raised in a church environment, a good Lutheran environment. Who knows if I had been raised in another environment, I'd have no interest. But given the choice, given the choice, I would want to be doing nothing else than what I'm doing now. Fantastic. And... Uh... Did, do you have anything uh, uh, to share with our listeners, for example, if you think about uh, going back in time? And is there anything you wish you knew uh, when you first started playing the organ and doing uh, church music uh, that, that might have helped you that you know now, for example? Mm -hmm. Do you have any, any, any advice for people like that? I wish I would have listened more. I think part of that comes with maturing. When you're a student at college, you're in your early 20s, and you, you have a different worldview perspective. Um, but there are many lessons, um, not just musical lessons, but life lessons that were given to me from Pamela and Marilyn Kaiser. And I wish I had listened more. Mm -hmm. And there were times I know in my own practice, like thinking, I know, oh, I don't agree with that, or I know the right way to do it, or, oh, I know the better way to do it, um, or the historically informed, or not, whatever. Um, who cares about this? This is how I'm going to do it. Um, I, I had a bit of that at times. Um, you know, you're, you're confident young musician. <laughs> you think you, you're the, the master of, of, of the world. That's a little much, but, um, but I wish I, I had really listened more at that time at the time. It's funny though. Now I, when I play something, I'm working on the, the G minor, but 542, a G minor prelude few working on a few right now. I haven't played that since my master's degree. I just haven't played it. And I'm going back and I'm reading the notes from Pamela. Uh, and it's, it's so interesting. When I see her handwriting on the score, I'm using the same score. Images start coming back. Lessons start coming back. I, I begin to associate one with the other. And, and that's a gift that I can recall a lot of that. But, um, but I, I, just, I wish I would have had the wherewithal to, really open my ears to everything that um, was being given to me. So if that makes any sense. Uh, thank you so much, Scott, for being so open, so generous and, uh, and sharing your insights. I think uh, people around the world will appreciate and, uh, and um, get inspired uh, uh, by lis to listen more, right? To try out new things like, like uh, um, do a cappella stanzas, right? That you talked yeah, about. Yeah, right. And uh, of course, there uh, they want to know more about you and your work. So can you give us a link where they can find you and your work online? Um, let's see. Uh, yes. Uh, the link for my parish, I don't have a music page up, but I plan to eventually with some recordings from my concerts, but it's nativitybartlett.org. So N-A-T-I-V-I-T-Y-B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T.org. Nativitybartlett.org. Uh, you could also uh, Google Church of the Nativity. I have a YouTube channel. Um, I haven't put anything on there. there. There are only a few videos, but um, if you search, you could just search my name, Scott L. Schultz, or 76 Orgelmeister, mm -hmm. uh, I think was my handle. I think they've changed that now into my name, but um, just search for Scott L. Schultz and you'll find uh, some, some videos. Uh, I'm really happy with some of those, actually, uh, from, from on YouTube. And you can also search for me on Facebook. I, Facebook, I don't use that much, only professional and to show family pictures of uh, my daughter. <laughs> That's my primary use of Facebook. But you can, you can find me there, send me a message. Um, Are you on LinkedIn too? I'm not. No, I'm, I'm not on LinkedIn. Um, and I don't have my own website. I was going that route, but, um, but uh, I don't know. I guess once becoming a parent, I just focus more on that. But um, 
but yeah, m- I, listen to some YouTube recordings. Uh, go to the church website. There's not much there, but send me um, a message. I can also give my email, um, which is scottlschultz at gmail.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-E-L-S-H-O-L-Z at gmail.com. Uh, it's interesting. I've received emails. Uh, someone did find my work with Bootstrap once, a well-known researcher in the field, actually, and uh, she contacted me once for a bit of information. She found my email. So if anyone wants to know about Johann Heinrich Buchstedt, um, give me a look me up and uh, I'd be happy to share some of that information. The dissertation is available online. If you just Google um, Buchstedt and Scott L. Schultz, you'll find it. A link to the whole whole work. So. Fantastic. So I'll get the description and the link and everything put together and to give people a chance to visit your work and connect with you too. Great. So thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And of course, this hour passed so quickly, right? And I can't believe we've already been at this an hour. <laughs> I could go again, go and go. But this has been a gift. And it's such a delight. Uh, to to dialogue to duet and dialogue with you yet again, Vidas. Uh, exactly. So so um, Scott, I wish you fantastic creative year and many many creative accidents, right? That 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 uh, that it will lead into new uh, vistas, right? Creative vistas and uh, uh, get outside of your comfort zone uh, more often, right? Yes. And stay. Amen. Healthy. Amen to that. Stay healthy too, and. Uh, okay. You as well. Thank you so much. Osha sends her greetings to Give her my love. Thank you. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.